Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. We uh, awakened this past Christmas morning uh, to a disturbing news flash. There had been an explosion in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. As the day went on, the story became more bizarre. The bomb was in an old RV. A recording was playing warning people about the bomb and counting down. In between announcements, the recording played a Pachula Clark hit from the 1960s downtown. The detonation occurred when the fewest possible people would be in the area to minimize casualties. At the moment, investigators are not certain about the motives of the bomber. What we do know is that the bomb damaged an AT&T facility, perhaps because the bomber's father was employed by a precursor to AT&T. That's one possibility. Another is that the bomber was obsessed with conspiracy theories one being the danger of 5G networks. You know, fear of uh, cellular technology and Wi-Fi has been around for as long as those technologies have been around. Uh, Who can forget those uh, prophecies of uh, cooked cancerous brains when cell phones first came out? And as a new technology, the... 5G is the latest suspect. In addition to that, the spread of 5G networks and the spread of the coronavirus were bound to get linked uh, in the minds of conspiracy theorists because they were happening at about the same time. Something on the order of 50 cell towers in the United Kingdom were destroyed just in the month of April this past year as the initial spread of the virus in the UK occurred. And this current outbreak outbreak, if you will, if you enjoy puns, uh, of the conspiracy theory appears to have begun in France in the right-wing blog titled Les Moutons Enragés, the enraged sheep, or maybe the rabid or mad sheep. The fact that Facebook began cracking down on sites propagating the theory only made conspiracy theorists more enraged. And so, The logic of this particular conspiracy fantasy appears to be that 5G technology causes radiation, which spreads COVID-19. Perhaps, goes the speculation, the pandemic is all about those towers that are going up all over the world because weren't they building 5G towers in Wuhan when all this started? Another conspiracy theory that the bomber may have uh, bought into was about shape-shifting reptilian aliens who, as uh, the theory goes, are disguised as world leaders such as the Obamas and celebrities like um, Justin Bieber. And then there's the satanic cult of pedophiles and cannibals that QAnon devotees fear. And I'm sure this list goes on and on. To repeat, investigators don't know at this point if the Nashville bomber bought into these conspiracy theories, but a lot of people do, somewhere up to 25% by some estimates. 
and that's my question for the day. Why do people believe fantasies like these? And I guess there are multiple reasons. The reason I want to focus on today is the function of images and symbols in the mental life of human beings. Because our theme for this new January is imagination. And today I want to think about the images and the imagination and how those images can lead us to clarity and to delusion. Because the first step in getting beyond manipulation, I think, is to understand what images in general mean to the thought of we human beings. And the second step is about interrogating those images concerning who and what put them there, why and how, and can we accept them or should they be ignored? Perhaps the most amazing thing about human consciousness is that even though every one of us has it, as has every Homo sapiens who has ever lived for the past 50,000 years or so, we still have no idea what consciousness is. Different disciplines define consciousness in different ways, but none of them have cracked the code convincingly. Do we think in words? Do we think in images? Do we think in a combination of these, sometimes in one, sometimes the other, sometimes both? Or are we perhaps fooled into thinking that we think in words or images when actually we don't think in either one of those? We don't know. And if uh, there's anything that's hiding in broad daylight, it is the mystery of consciousness. Does our consciousness function like a spotlight, maybe, shining on one spot for a length of time? Is that how we pay attention? Uh, is that how we focus? Is that how we uh, attempt to be mindful? We don't know. Is consciousness something created by our brains? Or does consciousness exist all through the universe? It's the special stuff, and we human beings each have a little sliver of it, but so do all the other objects in the universe. All these are good questions, and no one at the moment has definitive answers to them. When I say cat or dog, you most likely have a subjective mental image that occurs to you. Perhaps it's even a complex image of a particular pet that meant a great deal to you. That's an image. By contrast, when I say white house, chances are you think of a whole matrix of meanings that are all jumbled together. For Americans, there's likely no doubt that we'll think of White House with capital letters, a building in the nation's capital. But White House probably doesn't mean only a building in Washington, D.C. to many of us. Some of us have actually been there and visited. Some of us have studied the place in history. And the list goes on. That is what a symbol is. It calls up a matrix of ideas and associations uh, in our consciousness. And, uh, well, okay, but is that how consciousness works then? Is it heaps together, all of these, and we think we're thinking? And how does that work? The 20th century uh, psychiatrist Carl Jung focused his thought on how our minds operate. He thought that we think in images and symbols. And he thought that we have two places where these abide, in our conscious minds and in our subconscious for Jung, the conscious, the ego, is the enforcer of conventionality and ossified social rules, tradition. 
In contrast, the subconscious is accessed in dreams and meditation and in art and in states of mind that he called the active imagination. We cannot reach what Jung called individuation, becoming individuals, becoming a self-actualized individual until we integrate these two aspects of ourselves. Jung wrote, quote, the creative aspect of the imagination frees us from our knowledge of the nothing but and raises us to the state of one who plays. And now by the nothing buts, he meant conventional thinking, the puppets on strings who believe in the status quo. Those who play are the people who have realized an assertion by the Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius, quote, realize that your mental images and the voice in your head is not reality, but your subjective judgments. The fiction writer Philip K. Dick insisted that writers write in order to mess up the script that others are writing for them. And Jung and Marcus Aurelius would agree with that, I think. We become the images we imagine of ourselves, our environment, our social locations, our nations, and the natural world. We've got to stay awake to the images that are driving our thoughts if we want to avoid being puppets on strings. The Spanish philosopher George Santayana said, people become superstitious not because they have too much imagination, but because they are not aware that they have any. And Jung would agree, we are more creative than we know. We create or adopt our images of reality without even noticing that we are doing it. And that can cause some problems. The human imagination is an amazing thing. When I began to write poetry as a young person, my exploration of poetry focused on writers who focused on the boundaries of human consciousness. They were pushing on the envelope of what human consciousness was. The ability to consciously create and manipulate images is a way of exploring consciousness itself. And that's the point where art and religions meet. Uh, I'll read a little bit of a poem called Night Breeze by the contemporary French poet Claire Malraux uh, to give you a little idea of how this can be done. Unexpectedly, the windows open wide during the night. The rectangle swallows the bedroom. It's a different night where life turns inside out like a glove. A veined hand emerges, leaf of a negative hope on the phantom wall. Pointing towards what? The cliff of a lake, sea snows, lunar suns, a rough but tender tongue darts from it, paying no attention to the guardrails of speech. Come unstuck. Drawings, framed mirrors, the scribblings of the world slip from the walls, docile and unafraid. The sheets knot themselves for an escape, exchange close body heat for the sweet, cold freedom of clouds. Images. Images manipulated to create an altered sense of consciousness. Claire Malroux is the great tradition uh, continues that of the Symboliste poets back in the 19th century, Baudelaire, Rimbaud, Mallarmé, and then the French Surrealists of the 20th century. We have the ability to escape the bounds of the images that are fed to us. 
We only have to realize that in order to break those chains. That's one of the reasons I think it's good to study some humanities. Each of us builds what in German is called a Weltbilder, a worldview or world pictures that add up these images to some kind of a symbol of reality. We heap those images together until we have created our realities. Generally speaking, we do not become conscious of this constructed reality until something causes us to stop and consider how this happens. It might be a jolt of serious illness or a serious loss, or maybe it just develops out of a curious mind. But whatever the cause, it is this pause to consider where the pictures, the images come from that shows us through religions and through philosophies and through art that what we usually consider as solid reality is in fact a shoddy and malleable construction. Our day-to-day -day consciousness of reality is always a fixer-upper. A religion or a philosophy or an aesthetic in terms of the arts, is nothing more and nothing less than a heap of images and symbols that present an orientation toward a living a life, a wilt builder, a worldview, a way of seeing the world and dealing with the pleasures and the pains and the challenges the world offers during our lifetimes. But what about when we have images of pestilent cell towers and lizard people overlords and pedophilic cannibals running pizza restaurants? Well, no, this is not about education. That's a common liberal mistake. This is about the mind chasing shiny objects and reinforcing our preconceptions of how we already thought reality was going, a dangerous place and unknown. The 20th century French philosopher Pierre Adot developed a neo-Stoic philosophy uh, of Marcus Aurelius. And number one on his list of ways to change our lives through Stoicism is one that I quoted a little bit earlier. Realize that your mental images and the voice in your head is not reality, but your subjective judgments. And that's the essence of ancient Stoicism. It's the essence of Taoism and Buddhism and some traditions within Hinduism. Until we understand this foundational aspect of human consciousness, we are puppets on strings. Pierre Adol goes on with the Stoicism-inspired list like this. Stop being a puppet on a string. Get into the moment. Assess where you are right now. What can you change? And what can't you change? Remember how short your time on this earth is. That's the list. The first step towards ceasing to be a puppet on a string is realizing that your mental images and the voice in your head is not reality, but only your subjective judgments. The way to stop being a puppet on a string is to realize that the images in our heads are creating our reality for us. If we let them, they will create our reality. The people who accept the fantasy that 5G networks spread coronavirus are puppets on strings. Images and ideas have been put in their heads by others, and those believers dance on that string even to the point of destroying property and killing people.
Those Confederate monuments are images created to pull at the heartstrings for that lost cause of the Civil War, leaving out that other image of the lost cause, the one about racialized slavery. As I said earlier, philosopher George Santayana understood people become superstitious not because they have too much imagination, but because they are not aware that they have any. The believers in conspiracy theories just can't see that they've been fed juicy images designed to create their subservience to fantasy. Killer cell towers, lizard people, pedophilic cannibals operating out of pizza restaurants. These are compelling images. They're, they're shiny objects, and they have millions of people on strings. We progressives aren't immune uh, ask yourself, you know, who's pulling your strings? What's the image or the symbol that has you in its thrall? It's not only right-wing conspiracy theorists who are believing in the images that are implanted in our brains. Human beings are prone toward collective fantasies and then individual delusions. Here's an example. The American philosopher Frederick Jameson once said, quote, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, end quote. Hmm. And I think he's right about that. So why is it easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism? Is it that the juicy images of apocalypse are easier for us to conjure up? Forests burning, glaciers melting, soil parched, children starving, grim and visceral images. We already know what the end of the world will look like when it does come. And those images are terrifying. But the end of capitalism, what would that look like? The first step towards ceasing to be a puppet on a string is realizing that your mental images and the voice in your head is not reality, but only your subjective judgments. Cutting those strings is about realizing the power of images and undermining that power when it's needed. Rearranging those images and symbols, questioning. Sure, those who play with images and symbols are going to make mistakes and chase shiny objects around. Yeah, we do. But we must be vigilant and awake and aware and always working toward human flourishing rather than living in fear. I'll end with a translation of chapter 12 from the Tao Te Ching, translated by Ursula K. Le Guin. And it's all about images, this little chapter. It's called Not Wanting. The five colors blind our eyes. The five notes deafen our ears. The five colors dull our taste. Racing, chasing, hunting drives people crazy. Trying to get rich ties people in knots. So. The wise soul watches with the inner, not the outward eye, letting that go, keeping this. So may it be. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.